Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of Essential Questions. Today, our question is, how do science and religion fit together in our lives? Sam Harris, noted thinker and atheist, writes the following. The conflict between religion and science is inherent and very nearly zero-sum. The success of science often comes at the expense of religious dogma. The maintenance of religious dogma always comes at the expense of science. It is time we conceded a basic fact of human discourse. Either a person has good reasons for what he believes or he does not. The difference between science and religion, he writes, is the difference between a genuine openness to fruits of human inquiry in the 21st century and a premature closure to such inquiry as a matter of principle. I believe that the antagonism between reason and faith will only grow more pervasive and intractable in the coming years. Iron Age beliefs about God, the soul, sin, free will, etc., continue to impede medical research and distort public policy. And then at the same time, the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs writes, Science is about explanation. Religion is about meaning. Science analyzes. Religion integrates. Science breaks things down to their component parts. Religion binds people together in relationships of trust. Science tells us what it is. Religion tells us what ought to be. Science describes, religion beckons, summons, calls. Science sees objects. Religion speaks to us as subjects. Science practices detachment. Religion is the art of attachment, self to self, soul to soul. Science sees the underlying order of the physical world. Religion hears the music beneath the noise. Science is the conquest of ignorance. Religion is the redemption of solitude. So which is it? Is science the enemy of religion or is silence its natural complement? And to help us explore this topic and others, Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman is an extraordinary leader who has created this amazing organization, Sinai and Synapses, that bridges the scientific and religious worlds and is being incubated by a remarkable organization called CLAL, which for decades has been the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, trying to bring together a pluralist understanding of Judaism. So, Jeff, it's wonderful to have you this morning. I appreciate you taking the time. Tell us a little bit about your own journey. What was it that drew you to create this remarkable organization in which we try to synthesize ideas of science and religion together? Sure, and thank you, Dan. Nice to meet all of you here. Thank you uh, for inviting me. And the quotes that you brought are very much at the crux of what we try to do through Sinai and Synapse. So I started, I grew up loving math and science. I was a, uh, so I started college as a math major. I was deep in math in middle school and high school. I'm a big baseball fan. I live in the Northeast, so I'm a big Yankees fan. So I would, I would calculate batting averages and I would do experiments in my kitchen. I never blew off an eyebrow, but I would do little experiments at home and absolutely loved science. And I also deeply loved Judaism. Uh, my father was the president of our Reform Synagogue 
growing up in Westchester County. My mom was on the board. So when she was having board meetings, I would often sit in the library and read baseball encyclopedia uh, or do math problems. And so I always loved these parts of who I was. But as I now look back on my life, I'm now in my mid-40s and seeing the way that the American public discourse has happened over the last 30, 40, maybe 50 years, the public discourse has really deteriorated. That a lot of these conversations started off by saying, oh, that's interesting. Tell me about where you're coming from. And then it became, no, I'm right. And then it became, no, I'm right. You're stupid. And then it became, I'm right. You're evil. That's really where we are. And so as you go to the Sam Harris line, I am a little bit concerned about the kinds of conversations that we are having in our society right now. But I think Harris kind of helps create and and develop more of those problems because there's a perception in our society today that there are two poles. One side is viewed as scientific and educated and liberal, and the other side is viewed as religious and uneducated and conservative. And if you pick anything from either of those columns, you've got to pick everything in that column. It's even better if you demonize the other side. What's become in our society, this idea that you should be cheering for your side and rooting against the other side. And that's where a lot of the conversation comes. When in reality, the biggest questions that we face in this world are not religious and they're not scientific. They're human. They're questions of who am I? How do I act in this world? How do I deal with people that I may disagree with? How do I approach questions from many different ways? What what is the relationship between facts and truth? Those are questions where there's a, a religious way to approach them. There is a scientific way to approach them, but they're ultimately trying to be able to say, who am I and, and how do I act in my society and my world right now? I think you're absolutely right. I think that sense of intolerance and demonization of the other is probably one of the key roots of what is threatening the health of our society and not just here in the United States, but really around the world. So when you think about your ways of integrating religion and science, Ian Barber, uh, who's the physicist whom many have said has been credited with literally creating the contemporary field of science and religion, talked about four modes of a possible relationship between science and religion. It was either conflict or independence or dialogue or integration. And so if religion and science are both quests for truth, why do we think that science and religion conflict? So when you think of your models, which do you think is the most appropriate? That's a great question. I I tend to like, and, and we use a similar model also for, for Ian Barber, I tend to like the dialogue model the most. I, I think the conflict model is kind of useless. That's where we get a lot, unless unless you need to get clicks and views and downloads, right? Because conflict is what sells people. The integration, I think, is valuable, but they do approach questions in different kinds of ways. Science and religion are different ways of thinking about these questions. But being in dialogue, and I think particularly because dialogue entails human beings, and this is one thing that we really think about and talk about through Sinai and Synapses, is that the way in which science advances is through scientists. If you were to ask a scientist, why are you studying these distant galaxies or why are you studying insects? They will talk about what inspires them. And then they may talk about it in a reverent kind of way. We may say religious, but they may just say a level of, of awe and, and wonder. 
And so those are the questions where their humanity impacts their scientific work, which then advances science in our society right now. Religion, and, and one of the problems with what Sam Harris was talking about is that he conflates a lot of words of belief and faith and religion, that, and those are all slightly different elements. Uh, and Judaism in particular is much more of a, of a focus on religion rather than faith or belief. Judaism is much more about practice. And so the practice that we create, that's when we bring together human beings from different ideas and different perspectives to be able to, to do work together, to be able to come together in a community. If you were to come to, to your synagogue in South Florida or, or wherever you happen to be, and you were asked somebody, what do you believe about God? And 100 people show up, you're going to get 150, 200 different responses. But they're all going to be in the same place in the same time, at least exploring the same kinds of questions. I think that, that exploring these questions in dialogue and being able to say, what are the core questions that we need to be looking at? Both Democrats and Republicans have become very, very strong advocates of what's called community organizing. Now, they come at it in, in different kinds of ways. But one of the lines of community organizing is asking people, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of bed in the morning? And that's something that allows you to be able to approach questions where we can solve issues rather than attacking each other and, and counterattacking each other. So the dialogue and opening up a space, that's really, really important. And I appreciate that idea of dialogue because I think I was once taught that debate is like volleyball, where your job is to try to hit the ball as hard as you can to make the other person miss so you can score a point. Dialogue is like a game of catch, where you're trying to share something in a way the other can receive, and they're trying to share it back to you in a way that you can get it, and the idea is to not let the ball drop. I think that when you take these two different sort of lanes of inquiry and say, let's see how long we can keep the ball between us in the air, you're right. You have the opportunity, I think, for the development of wisdom. So let's talk for a moment uh, about miracle. There's the, the great story about a little boy who comes home from Hebrew school, and his parents say, so what did you learn today? And he says, oh, well, we were taught that there was a time when our people were enslaved in Egypt, and then Pharaoh released them, and the people ran to the sea, and they couldn't go any further, and the Pharaoh changed his mind and went to get them, and the people called out to God, and then the IDF came, and they bombed the Egyptian chariots, and they built a mechanical bridge across the Red Sea, and the people walked across the mechanical bridge while the IDF protected them and they were safe and the Egyptians were drowned in the sea. His parents said to him, was that what they really taught you? And he says, no, but if I told you what they really said, you'd never believe me. <laughs> so, you know, if miracle is something that seems to defy the laws of nature, what would someone who wants to believe in science say about miracle? Do I have to surrender a belief in science to embrace a concept of miracle? Or do I have to sort of say miracle is sort of for kids, and if I'm a sophisticated adult and I believe in science, then there is no such thing? It's a, it's a great question. It's a very challenging question. And I want to use the word miracle of, of NACE. We use the word miracle 
in a few different ways. Some of these are ideas of uh, something that's supernatural, but we also talk about the miracle of birth, right? People talk about the miracle of birth. That is the most natural thing. It happens hundreds of thousands of times a day or thousands of times a day, right? Every person who is talking right now exists because of the miracle of birth that was a totally natural process. And so when we talk about miracle, the language that I use of, of the Hebrew word of nes, meaning more sort of a sign or something that opens opens our eyes, at least in the reform movement, one of the things that we talk about in the in the morning prayer book, in in the conservative movement, it's uh, the the Berachot Shachar, the, the the morning blessings. But in the reform movement, in the prayer book, they translate it as the Nisim B'chol Yom, the miracles of the everyday. The idea is, at least in my mind, how do you orient yourself so that there is a a new awareness of the the gratitude that we have for our lives and for what is happened to us. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that it's supernatural or natural there. Using the word miracle, in my mind, is something that opens our eyes in a way that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Now, when we're thinking about texts of, of, of the biblical text, the splitting of the Red Sea or the origins of the universe, I think it's also really, really important to recognize that the Torah is not a science textbook, that the, the Torah is not meant to be able to speak in language where they can understand how does the technology work and where do they understand fMRIs and double-blind studies and light refraction. And like when they were writing the Torah, that's first of all, there was no concept of what science is, but that's also not the goal of how and why the Torah was written. In the same way that if you were to read a piece of poetry, you're not going to be able to say, well, what kind of rose is this talking about? A rose is a rose is a rose. Well, is it this particular rose? Is it that particular rose? When someone writes something that's poetic, the author is trying to be able to evoke a variety of different feelings and emotions. I don't take the Torah as something that is designed to be scientific because it's not meant to be scientific. However, being able to to say, what are the lessons that we can learn from this and how can these ideas open up our eyes to new experiences and new thoughts, that's the way in which I tend to explore those kinds of questions. I remember when I was in college, I knew a professor of biology. He was an ornithologist. He studied birds, Dr. Novak. He was a very religious man, Episcopalian. And I asked him one time, I said, so like as a scientist, how do you square that sense of also being religious? And he says, you don't understand. He said, the more I study these birds, the more religious I become. He said, the more that I am able to understand the incredible complexity of their biology, of their instincts, of of what makes a bird a bird, uh, the more I become in awe of the universe that I'm studying. And I, I can appreciate that sense of religion being this vehicle that cultivates that sense of wonderment and awe, gratitude, appreciation, in the same way that you talk about for that sense of the miracle of birth as being a certainly scientific, natural event, but one that can also inspire extraordinary wonderment and awe at just the natural process in the universe. So Saja Gaon, in his book of Beliefs and Opinions, which was over a thousand years ago, had this interesting argument where he said that since reason, 
itself is a gift of creation from God. And since reason purports to present what is true, property, you know, when you reason a conclusion, something that makes sense must therefore be true. But then at the same time, he argued that since the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, also are said to be a gift of revelation from God, then what Scripture says when it's properly interpreted is also true. And since theoretically there is truth out there with a capital T, just as there is a God with a capital G, right? So there must be sort of a sense that the proper conclusions of reasoning from sense experience, which we might call science, and the proper interpretations from reading the Torah, Hebrew scriptures, which we might call religion, therefore have to be in agreement. My question is, what does a person do, as you suggested, with the Torah? What do I do with that little boy who says, you wouldn't believe me? What do you do with stories in the Torah that don't seem to square with what the natural world looks like, whether it's stories of people who live fantastically long lives, or whether it's plagues in Egypt, or whether it's manna in the wilderness, or water from a rock, or a sun that stands still, or whatever it purports to be truth within the Torah itself. Is that where the truth of the Torah is found? Are there other ways of thinking of the Torah as true that doesn't necessarily compromise our sense of science? So that's a great question. There's there I have a few different responses to that. So again, first of all, I think not to read the Torah through the lens of science. Because again, science as we understand it right now is only let's be very generous, maybe 500 years, 600 years old. I think it's actually even more recent than that. Coming at it from a scientific perspective, that's not the best lens to look at through the Torah. There are a couple of different things. One is that the word true means a variety of different things. And I think that there's what we might call a difference between natural facts versus social facts. So a natural fact is, for example, that if if I were to take a pen and drop it, that's going to fall to the ground, right? That is, that's a natural fact. That's how gravity works. There's, there are things that exist in the natural world. But then there are elements that we might call social facts. Social facts being, for example, like Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States. That's, that's not a natural fact. That's, that exists because of the laws that we've created in our American society right now. A lot of Judaism is not necessarily natural facts. They're social facts. Right? The fact that something is kosher or not kosher when different holidays start, those exist because we say they do. Right, so A child becomes bar bat mitzvah at 13 or 12, depending on what community they're part of. That's a social fact. The Torah sometimes talks, those are some of those would be social facts and social truths. So I think we've got to be careful when we talk about the word truth, there's natural facts and then there's social facts. So I think that's an important distinction. The other thing that that I would say is these questions of truth, and and Sadia Gaon and Greek philosophy talk about truth in the capital T. What a lot of modern science has, has said is that that's actually not the way science works. The best definition I've heard of science, that science's job is to help us become progressively less wrong. I was talking with a professor of, of evolution a couple months ago, and, and he said that he was asked, how much of of what I'm teaching is going to be wrong in 50 years. And he said, hopefully, all of it. <laughs> That's, you know, that, that our understanding 
of the world gets better and better and better. And so there's a there's a professor named uh, named Stephen Goldman who uses a, a great example, and and I've actually used this to talk about God at least. What he calls something called a scientific object. If you think about, I'll give I'll give a couple of quick examples of this. Think about the Earth. The Earth is whatever the Earth has been over four and a half billion years. That's like it is what it is. It was created in the solar system, and it went through snowball Earth and Hadean Earth, and it went through all these different and Pangea and continental drift, and like it's Earth has been whatever the Earth has been. But what we understand about the Earth has changed dramatically in the last maybe 100, 200 years. If we were to say, how old was the Earth? That number has changed many different times. How did the continents come into be? That's changed over different times. We can talk about there have been different dinosaurs that they've quote-unquote existed and not existed because of classifications. What actually exists in the world, and then we might call it the, the scientific object version of it, of what we understand about it right now, that may change. Or, you know, the atoms that are floating around in our body, our atoms are whatever our atoms are. But first there was the idea of, is the atom what they call a plum pudding? Are all the different parts of our, the atoms spread throughout the atomic structure? Or is it like the solar system? Or is it quantum mechanics? And that's changed. Or is Pluto a planet? Pluto is whatever Pluto is, but it's been reclassified from being a planet to a dwarf planet. It is what it is, but we've redefined these ideas. And so when we think about God or the Torah, God or the Torah is whatever God in the Torah is. That's that. That's we 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 can't control that. That's that's those those are things that are outside of our knowledge. But our understanding of it develops over time. And I think Judaism as a whole has has developed over thousands of years. Of this is what this is what we knew at that time. And new knowledge has come in, and we're able to adapt that and change that. And it's we're not throwing it away, but we're able to be able to say we have new knowledge, and let's look at this in, through the lens of new data and new interpretations. I think that's fascinating, and I think in so many ways, the critique of modern people who are enamored with science is that religion is something that holds that the truths that we knew in ancient times are unassailable and non-evolving, right? So right. as if we were to use your construction there, humanity is humanity, but the moral truths about how we should live as holy beings one with another evolves and emerges, right? So just in the last 150, 200 years, humanity has evolved remarkably in their understandings of the moral questions surrounding race or slavery or elements of human justice in that way, what role women should play in society and what are their inalienable rights, uh, and more recently, an understanding of where should people who are LGBTQ plus have a place in society where they can be able to live their most authentic lives. So in the same way, I'm hearing that science is this ever-evolving understanding of what is the world in which we live. There ought be a similar evolution within the religious and moral sphere about who we are and what we believe and what are the truths that we're going to use to live our lives and pass on to future generations. Exactly. And that's, you know... the. May we all 
act right now and look back and, and, and 100, 200 years from now, somebody say, oh my God, I can't believe that's what they believed in, and, and how could they have been so dense? Because what that means is that there's been a moral evolution in the same way that we look, we look back on American history and we say, oh, how could they possibly have believed this? And some of that is because, because there's been a moral evolution. And we hope that 200 years from now, people are even more morally involved than we are now. We're living, we, we live only where we are right now. May it be so that 200 years from now, the moral arc of justice continues to bend. So in the 19th century, as science became part of the modern world and Jews became part of the modern world, uh, there was this idea in German called Wissenschaft des Judentums, right? This idea of the scientific study of Judaism. And emerging from that field were elements of biblical criticism, critical scholarship of Judaism, applying a historical social scientific model to trying to understand our tradition, biblical archaeology, all kinds of things. And there are some that would say that's what made actually religion palatable for people in the modern world. And then there are others that say it was that application of science that kind of compromised the spiritual power of what it is to engage in a text or Jewish spirituality. Can you talk about the ways in which you think science contributes to our experience of religion and maybe ways in which science might detract from our experience of religion? Yeah, so I think a lot of this is being able to experience the awe and majesty of of our universe, and and you talked about this as well with with your friend who's the uh, the ornithologist of being able to say how how do we learn how do we know about this world? And if we start with a with a question of tell me about a, a moment that that you feel awe and wonder, or what is it? What is a question that you that you don't yet have the answer to? That's a way in which we can open up conversations from both a, a scientific and a religious perspective. Particularly, there are a lot of scientists, including, I believe, people like Sam Harris, who are very anti-religious, but are willing to use a word of like sacred, or they may not use the word spiritual, but sacred is a word that they that they may use, or awe and wonder, right? That's that is a that is a, a way in which they experience the world. And I think religion can give us language for that if we so choose. I think where a lot of the conflict comes in, that comes much more in terms of the politics and the policies and often straw man arguments that happen. And, and, I, and I also think a large part of it is, uh, is an undercutting of trust in institutions right now. I think that there have been a lot of religious communities that have understandably lost the trust of their constituents. And I think there are a lot of scientific and, and academic institutions that have lost a lot of trust there as well. What tends to happen is that people people may end up in their camps because it becomes a, a, an attack and a counterattack and a counterattack. And when people are attacked, understandably, they're going to dig in much more. When it's started and presented as, again, I'm right, you're at best, I'm right, you're wrong, but but maybe even I'm right, you're evil, that's going to to, to generate more conflict and, and less productive conversation. But if we're able to start with, tell me about a moment when you felt awe, or tell me about something that you are curious about, that's that's a way in which the conversation can be much more generative. 
You know, I think that since, uh, you know, we're seeing from the new Webb telescope, you see these phenomenal images that come from the deepest recesses of the universe. And of course, those images are not necessarily what the telescope is seeing, but they're ways in which they can be represented for the human eye. You know, they blow people away. Yep. Uh, and even in Kabbalah, right, there's this idea of this counterbalance between netzach, which is this need for human drive, accomplishment, uh, achievement, and hod, which is gratitude, wonder, awe, that these things kind of need to be held in balance. And so I, I wonder, like, what happens when you get out of balance? You know, so what are some of the dangers that happen when you have science without religion to balance it, or the dangers of when you have religion without science to balance. I'm thinking about things like eugenics, right, pseudosciences, or uh, nuclear proliferation, or when people deny climate science because of a belief in a fundamentalist outlook on religion. Tell me a little bit about the dangers when you don't have one to counterbalance the other. Yeah, I mean, you hit almost all of them right now. I think that's that's a those are those are a large part of those. Some of the challenge is of a pull and a push between, and I'm going to use these in 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 lowercase letters, of a liberal or a progressive perspective and a, a more uh, conservative perspective. I think it was Rabbi Eric Yaffe, who was the former president of the URJ, who wrote a piece saying that religion is conservative and that's good. Um, and for those of us who identify in the liberal Jewish community, that language may make us a little bit uncomfortable. But there is value in trying to put the brakes on things to be able to say, hold on a second, let's let's pause and let's reflect here. I think there's there's a, a lot of value. I'm thinking there was an article actually just this morning about Bing's new artificial intelligence. And and I, I was laughing because the author of the article had said, last week I said that Bing, with its new artificial intelligence, has replaced Google as my favorite search engine. A week later, I'm not so convinced. I'm like, well, Google has existed for 15 or 20 years. A week, a, a, one or two days, he said, this is the best thing ever. And a week later, he said, well, maybe not. Like, sometimes we need to be reflective. We need to be able to say, hold on a second, let, let's think about this. There's an idea, actually, in... in uh, May get this slightly wrong, so I, I'm going to apologize in advance. But, but in the Amish community, we sort of joke that the Amish don't use technology. That's not true. The Amish actually use quite a bit of technology. But what they find is that they don't want to use anything that hasn't been used in in 70 years. They want to know what is the, at least the medium term impact of what this technology is going to be. And I think that's there's there is some value in that of being able to say hold on a second, let's put some brakes on these questions. Let's think about what this might, what this might mean. On, on the flip side, I think there, there can sometimes be a holding back of advancements, whether that is technological advancements, whether those are sometimes moral advancements as well, of being able to say, well, what are we saying? How, do we, how are we going to respond to these questions? What's accurate? I think a lot of these, a lot of these questions are complicated and muddy, and they're not necessarily easy questions. I think the bigger problem is not as much of one side or the other not one side or the other not being in the conversation. I think what's what's a bigger problem is when there's a lack of trust in in those conversations. When when one side is 
assuming bad faith in the other. I think that's where that's where the big problem lies. There needs to to be a, more of a good faith conversation of assuming that everybody is trying to do the right thing. Everyone is trying to make their world a little bit better. You know, as I often say, there's nobody in the world who is going to say, I know I want to make a decision that is going to hurt as many people as possible, be the most expensive and the dumbest idea possible. Nobody says that. Everyone, everyone wants to at least do what is right for, for themselves, for their family and their community. I think opening ourselves up to be able to, to be challenged, that's where we need to be able to, to be much better in our society. And I appreciate that idea of applying a religious pause when you think about the speed of human ingenuity. Morality might be best defined as deliberate restraint because of a values proposition, right? I could do that, but I won't because it's wrong. Right, So if I put someone in a straitjacket and I bring them into a bank vault and say, take what you want, there's no moral component to that decision because even if the person wanted to, they can't, right? However, if I put someone in a bank vault with a door wide open and no one around and say, it's up to you, do what you want, and that person walks out with nothing and closes the door and says, I could take anything I want, but I won't because it's wrong, that's where the moral quality of that action is found. And I think that that fundamental need of humanity to exercise moral judgment is sometimes very complicated in the scientific sphere. Because on the one hand, we saw that there was, because of religious sensibilities, a holdback on experiments on human embryos that thwarted scientific discovery in medicine. And at the same time, right, we ask ourselves, is it okay to employ genetic selection so I can have a made-to-order baby? Is it okay for me to use AI to write a history paper uh, instead of applying my own knowledge to those things? So it's interesting, just to sort of prepare to conclude, you know, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, whom I quoted at the beginning, wrote that, I want to argue that we need both religion and science, that they are compatible and more than compatible, they are essential perspectives that allow us to see the universe in its three-dimensional depth. And the creative tension between the two is what keeps us sane, grounded in physical reality without losing our spiritual sensibility. It keeps us human and humane. So when you think about sort of the way in which science and religion complement each other, what is it that you see as the, the best way that science and religion can live together? Yeah, but I think... I think that's a great that's a great question, and I think it comes out from from a question of how do I how do I best know myself and and my community here, and not coming at it from I'm right you're wrong, but coming at these questions of what are what are the values that are guiding me? What happens when when these values conflict? Uh, there's there's a great line. I'm sure he's not the only one who said it, but Paul Rude Wolpe was a professor of medical ethics had once said that that ethics is not a question of right versus wrong. We tend to think of, of, of you know, you're talking about these, you know, when you're talking about the bank vault, that's not a question, you know, that, that's an easy decision of like, will I steal money or will I not steal money? But a lot of the big ethical questions are when values conflict. You know, we can think, for example, at the beginning of, of COVID, when there were people who, when, when there were discussions of, 
everything shutting down to be able to to try to stop the the spread of of COVID. And at the same time, there were people who needed to be able to make money to be able to put food on the table for their families. Right. So what's what do we do? What's what's the what's the right trade-off here? There are questions of privacy and transparency. Those you know, there's those are two values that we talk about. What happens when they're when they're in conflict? So thinking about these these kinds of questions to approach them not as I'm right, you're wrong, but to be able to say, there may there these may be values that may be in conflict. And to be able to say, I am valuing this element over another. We're seeing this a lot in, in universities right now where there's there is a, a balance between what we might call a pursuit of truth. I don't necessarily say we're not necessarily going to find truth, a pursuit of truth and a pursuit of justice. And 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 sometimes sometimes one is uh is coming at the expense of of the other. And that's and that's that's creating a lot of problems of being able to to put in different different perspectives, different ideas to you know, different ideas because sometimes truth is uncomfortable. Sometimes scientific truth is not what we want to hear. Sometimes there's going to be scientific information that may be in contradiction to what we want our values to be. And if that's what the science says, then we need to be able to say that's what the science says. And you know what? I my my value of justice is trumping that right here. But to be able to be honest and to be able to say even even though this may be what what the the scientific accuracy is saying, that's fine. It's still my my value of justice is still is still more important in this conversation. So the last question that I would ask you, as our podcast is called Essential Questions, is what are the essential questions that you're asking yourself right now? What are the essential questions that are driving your own curiosity? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I've become very, very curious about a lot of the ethics of artificial intelligence, of this question of what does it what does it mean to be human? That's been a question that's that's existed for a long time. What what artificial intelligence has allowed us to do? Technology has allowed us to be able to enhance our bodies for in our, our physical world for for many, many years. This is the one of the first times that we're qualitatively improving our minds. So what's what is going to be the value of humanity and humans here? That's something that I'm really grappling with. I'm really interested and excited to see what the James Webb telescope is going to be able to to find out. I I think it's going to be a question of when and not if we discover life on other planets. I think it's I think finding intelligent life on other planets, that's a whole other question. I think that's very unlikely if if we discover, but Life itself is actually pretty prevalent and pretty. It came on, on Earth's history pretty pretty early on. Life life arrived on 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 Earth within the first few hundred thousand years of of the Earth's existence. Complex life didn't happen for a couple billion years, but life itself is is not as complicated. So I'm wondering what's going to happen in religious communities, and and what's going to be the response if we find life on other planets. And then there's there's there are the obvious questions where there's where, where the politics come in, questions of climate change, questions of uh, abortion and women's rights, questions of transgender rights. Those are questions where the science and the religion often are becoming weaponized, and and I think that ends up becoming at the expense of uh, of being able to create policies that are actually going to going to impact people's lives. I think some of that is how do we at least understand what the science has to say 
and or being able to say, I don't care what the finance has to say. This is what my values are going to be, and this is what I'm going to advocate for. So I think that's that's something that that I think is going to be uh, really important. Rabbi Jeff Middleman, we're so grateful for having you on our podcast today, and thanks for sharing such a rich conversation. And we look forward to having you on another episode of Essential Questions. Have a wonderful day. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast. 